continuing our study of the book of Psalms. And I don't know about anyone else, but I have enjoyed uh, spending time going through different types of Psalms, different uh, things that they talk about. And there's, there's all kinds of different issues and problems and, and, and things that come up throughout the Psalms that, uh, that can be challenging, that can be encouraging. And so it is my hope it is my desire that not only as we study a particular psalm each week, but that you in your, your private time, in your quiet times, that you're reading through them, that you're recognizing uh, these different things that are brought up. Sometimes great joy is, is expressed through the psalms, and sometimes heartfelt sorrow is expressed as well. Today, we're actually going to be uh, changing our, our direction and our focus just a little bit. Um, and looking at, at something a little bit different, um, I, I like to start off with a question. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you think of as the best possible government? Of, of government or a, a society that is, that is as, as great as it can be? Now, before you answer, obviously... If you've been coming on, on Wednesday nights or you've studied any of the, the millennial kingdom when Christ reigns in perfection, when all things are, are obviously that's, that's the optimum, that's the best, that's what we desire. But short of that, what is a good government? What is a desirable government? What comes to mind? Justice? I heard something over here. God-fearing? An honest, loving, okay. Okay, one that one that allows God to be uh, upfront, to be God fearing. Yeah. Righteous. Okay. In truth. In truth. Okay, we've, we've mentioned several words, righteous, just, truth, honest, as well as caring and you know, things of, of that nature that it might do. What about a governor? So, and, and not necessarily governor like what we think of in a, in a state setting, but a ruler or someone who is in charge of the government. What would be desirable? What would be optimal in a governor? in a leader of a country or a nation? Wise. Wise. Okay, one that, that listens to and cares for the people and their input. A good one, one who is good, yeah. Okay, one with integrity. They, they say what they mean and they mean what they say and they follow through on those things. God-fearing, okay. Compassionate. An unbiased, okay. So an individual who does the things that we just talked about, about a, a good government, right? Well, we're going to be turning our attention to Psalm 72. And, and as we think of, you know, the, the optimal government, the optimal governor, some of the things that we're going to see coming out of this are some of those ideas that we just talked about. Now, this particular psalm, it starts off and it says that it's a psalm of Solomon. 
And so there's, there is a little bit of discussion and whatnot. Did Solomon write it, or is it just about Solomon? I, I tend to land on the side that Solomon is the one who wrote this, probably fairly early in his uh, reign. And, and he wrote it as a song and as a prayer of his own, but also one that other people could be praying for him. But as we go through it, we're going to find that not only is it just focused on Solomon and a, a earthly kingdom and an earthly king, but there are allusions and there are things that point to an ultimate king and an ultimate perfect kingdom, a promised king who reigns over all things. And so as we go through, yes, there will be certain things that talk about Solomon and his reign and the way that he wanted to reign, but you and I are smart enough to know Solomon wasn't perfect. He didn't do things quite right. And so, to some extent, this psalm is what he desires to be, what he reaches for, what he's hoping to be, but also it's pointing to the ultimate king who is perfect, who does all of those things that we just talked about. Before, though, we get into Psalm 72, and I I am going to read through Psalm 72 in here a little bit, I want to look at something else that we learn about Solomon. If you would, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. I mentioned that, that... Psalm 72 is probably written fairly early in um, the reign of Solomon. But this is kind of the start of his reign. And you probably remember the account of of Solomon when he first gets started. But I wanted to go back and read through it and take a look at some of his desires, some of of his attitudes and things that went on right at the very beginning. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to read 3 through 15. But I want you to pay particular attention to verses 7 through 9 as we get to those. But starting off, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Now, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Now, let's pause there just for a moment. We've set the picture of an individual who loves God. We talked about, you know, what would be an optimal governor, what would be an optimal government. I think that's a great foundational start, a love and a desire for the things of the Lord. Above all else, that creates a great foundation. And so he loved God, and he went and he sacrificed. And not just a little bit, but he sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. Now, there, there's a lot going on here. It, it does make mention of he, he did burn incense on the high places, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but he, he deals with that. We'll get to that in a little bit. And there's a lot more in this passage that I'm not going to pull everything apart. But he starts out with this love and desire for God. And God comes to him and he asks him a question. What do you want me to give you? Now, just put yourself in that setting. What would your answer be? You don't have to answer to me, but think about what would you desire? If God came to you and said, what do you want? What would your answer be? Well, let's see what Solomon said. Verse 6, Then Solomon said, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David my father, according as he walked before thee, in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee. Thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. 
And now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So, give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of thine? And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the altar of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants." Now, obviously, we know Solomon didn't live perfectly. He messed up a lot. But this is, this is the very start of his reign. Right as he was um, recognized as king, put into position. And if you remember any of the story of what's going on, it wasn't a peaceful transition. It wasn't that everything went smoothly and perfectly and it, he went into office without any concerns. There was civil war on the horizon. There were arguments about who should be the next king and, and there was even attempts to, to do all kinds of different things. And so it would make sense that Solomon would say, you know what, I'm asking that you would wipe out all these bad guys. God even makes mention of that. Or I'm asking that I would have multitude of riches God mentions he could have asked that. Or that I would have a long and, and prosperous reign. But that's not what he asks for. What he asks for is discernment. To be able to judge rightly. Let's turn to Psalm 72. Keep this episode in mind as we look at Psalm 72. Um, obviously, this isn't exactly the time that he wrote this or anything like that, but... It's, it is good to bear in mind these other aspects that are going on in the life of Solomon. Now, this psalm is primarily a prayer for Solomon, the king of Israel. But as I said, it contains many allusions to Christ, the ultimate king of Israel. Let's read Psalm 72 together. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. May he judge thy people with righteousness, and thine afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people, and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let them fear thee while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
Let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon, and may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines, and let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. For those of you who got my uh, pre-study handout, you'll, you probably noticed a few things about it. One of them was that uh, each of the points was alliterated. Now, a question came up about, well, is there, is there like a class in seminary where they learn to, to do that? Because Jack always did that. Isaac, you're, you're doing that. What's going on? Yes, actually, there is a class in seminary that talks about alliterations not just for the sake of being clever, but to help us remember things, to help us be able to, to identify and break down the passage and then recognize what's going on with it. So as we go through this, there are certain um, E's that I brought out. Elsha, do you have my slide up there with the, the breakdown or not? No? Okay, that's okay. Um, there are certain uh, breakdowns of, of different E's to help us remember certain things that take place. Um, some of that's just being clever and, and working through it to be able to, to help us remember those things. So, the first one is the edict of his reign. That's, that's how I'm starting off. The first four verses really deal with that. And I ask the question, what do you observe as characteristic of the rule of this king that is being prayed for? Now, we already discussed some of those, talked about them. It, it starts out, give the king thy judgments, O God. So the very first thing that we look at is that a desire for judgments, not to be the judgments of an individual or of a regular person, but to be God's judgments and the way that he would uh, rule on these things. And thy righteousness to the king's son. So it starts off and it deals with this idea that they are asking God for certain things. Not that the king be, you know, in and of himself, this awesome and amazing and powerful type thing, but that God would grant certain things. Now, as you go through this book, or sorry, through this chapter, different translations will phrase it a little bit differently. And I, I recognize that. It's not a huge deal, but some of them will say, may he judge, may he do this, let him do that. Others will just make it a general blanket statement of, he will do these things. That's a, a translation-based issue, uh, based difference. Um, and I just I wanted to, to let you be aware of that. It's not that it's phrased a, a particular way that requires either of those. What's going on is a prayer is being asked 
that certain things be true, which is why NASB translates it as, may he judge. But the statement itself is, assuming that God's going to do this, he will judge this way. He will do these things. So bear that in mind as it goes through. It's both a request and a confident assertion that that is how this king will be ruling. So, may he judge thy people with righteousness, and thine afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people, and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That starts off setting quite the expectation of a ruler, and what they ought to be, how it ought to be set up. Now, the very first thing, uh, I, I asked what, what is characteristic of his rule. Uh, one of you said justice. And that's really what this is talking about. That's going to be the primary characteristic of the leader who follows God, of the leader who does what God wants, is that idea of justice. Now, it, it uses several different words. It says the judgments, and that's the act of deciding a case. That's as, as the king is in his position making decisions, and one of the things that, that we don't necessarily recognize about kings in the Old Testament as compared to what we expect and what we think of, obviously there was a, uh, inaug- not inauguration, um, coordination of the king of England, right? And so we, we have this tendency to think in modern terms of, of what a king might be and might do, and, and the king of England and modern kings are often very different than this. Think in this case like a Supreme Court where decisions would come to this king and he has to decide, okay, this or that. In fact, we looked at a, a passage in First Kings recently. We didn't continue on, but one of the very first things that happens with Solomon is a decision is brought to him. Uh, two parties, two women come to him and they want him to make a decision, make a ruling. And it, it, that passage in 1 Kings is, is very interesting in the way that Solomon deals with that. Well, all of this is saying we want those decisions, those uh, rulings in those cases to be the way that God would do it, the way that God desires it to be done, and not just a human way of doing things. So judgments are the act of deciding that case, um, and it's, it's really the weight of that is being recognized that this is a hard thing to make some of those. The ruler of a nation has to deal with a lot of questions like that. And so the only way for that to be done well, to be done rightly, is if God gives him the wisdom, God gives him the understanding uh, to make those decisions. The next one is justice. Um, and then there's also righteousness are all listed in this. You start digging into those words, you look them up, and there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of overlap in the meanings of those all of it, though, deals with truthfulness or what aligns with God's way of doing things. And that really is the ultimate desire here, is may he make these decisions, may he do the things the way that God would do them. Not his own way, but God's way. That's the, the primary focus. Uh, so judgments, justice, and righteousness all really deal with that. Um, <clears throat> And then we get down into this idea of vindicate. Verse 4, may he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The, the idea here is to give a ruling that equates with justice and righteousness. So this entire section is focused on those decision makings that are just, that are right, that are aligned with what God would do. Whether it's uh, making positive decisions 
or making more challenging negative decisions, such as the requirement to crush the oppressor. Sometimes the ruler had to break to pieces to crush, to destroy those who violate justice. And that's part of what justice is. It's both doing the right thing, but also stopping those who don't do the right thing. And the first four verses all deal with that edict or that, that way of ruling that it aligns with how God would rule. Because we know that God is just, that God is always just, which really sometimes ought to put a little fear into us when we realize we are not just. We fail. We fall short. We're sinners. God will deal with that. And yet we also have the promise of Christ that he dealt with our sin, that he can take it away and we can have his righteousness. So these first four verses deal with the desire, that focus on justice, that a a kingdom ought to be ruled in the way that God would rule it, with justice, without uh, these who violate it. The next section, verses 5 through 7, address the extent of his reign. And I ask the question, how long will he rule? Now, obviously we know that Solomon was a regular person. He would live for his lifespan. And that was it. That was the end of his rule. And yet, as we, as we read through this, there appears to be a desire expressed for a longer rule. Well, how does that work? How would that work with a human king? I think in part, the, the goal, the desire, is that the human kingdom would last a very, very long time and would be good and right and be just. But this is one of those where we start to see the indications and those allusions to Christ and his kingdom. And how long will Christ reign in perfection with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness? Well, let's read it. Let them fear thee while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. How long is that? How long will the the sun and the moon continue to exist? Now, now, for those of you who've been coming on Wednesday nights, let somebody else answer for just a moment. Because we've just been dealing with this in Wednesday night services. That question of how long will the earth exist? Doesn't, doesn't it all just pass away and, and get destroyed and it's all gone? Well, if you're wondering about that, Jack has a great handout uh, with a lot of verses that answer that question. And the answer is no, it's not going to be destroyed completely wiped out and and poof, annihilated, it's going to be remade, made new, made fresh. And so, great study, I'm getting off track. Great study, dig into that. The point is, how long will this kingdom endure? Forever. The extent of his reign is forever, forever and ever. Now, there's there's a word that comes up in this section uh, that I wanted to focus in on in verse 7. It says, uh, in his days may the righteous flourish an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. When you hear the word peace, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Calm, okay. No war. Absence of fighting, absence of violence. That, that's what generally comes to mind. Um, if, you, if you've got kids, particularly multiple young children, they, they like to argue and fight, right? You know what that's like. And if they aren't, as long as they're just quiet, we think of that as peace. We look, we look at the world around us. I see my mom is nodding. Apparently she remembers when my brother and I were young. <clears throat> we, we look at the world around us and we think of peace as no conflict, no fighting. Yes, that's true. But you start digging into this word 
It's the, the word is shalom. And it's more than just the absence of war. It's a completeness. It's, do what? Oh, I thought someone said something. It's, it's beyond just not having violence. It's a completeness and a fullness that, that is desired. So not just the, the lack of negative, but also the positive uh, presence and, and completeness of what God desired and what God designed to be. And, and it asks for abundance of peace. Not just a little bit, not just in a few places, but we're going to see in a moment throughout the whole world is the desire that we're looking at. <clears throat> and this is desired to be continued until the moon is no more. Again, that an, an expression that means forever. So what is the extent of his reign? It's desired forever, for all time. The next section, verses 8 through 11, address the expanse of his reign. How broad will he reign? Now, you, you remember, historically, we look through the Old Testament, we find that God granted a particular stretch of land. And the, the goal was that the people of Israel would rule that stretch, and really that the whole world would come to them and hear about who God is. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate desire. But as we, as we dig into this, we're going to find the, the desired rule of this, this Messiah, this promise, this ultimate king, how far is that desired to be? Let's read in verse 8. May he also rule from sea to sea. Well, how, how broad is that? We're not necessarily sure which seas he's talking about. So maybe, maybe just Mediterranean Sea to the Sea of Galilee, but just for sake of argument. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. But I'm not sure that that's quite what he means because the next one says, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the river... Typically, oftentimes, is referring to the river of Euphrates, but it could be the river of Jordan. I don't think that specifying which ones he's talking about is really his point because he's expressing ideas of the whole world, of all of it, from sea to sea, from the river to the extent of the earth, to the ends of the earth. But then we get into some people groups, and I, I think that that really will help us understand and answer this question of how far, how broad are we looking when it comes to the extent or the expanse of his reign, where he will rule. It says, let the nomads of the desert bow before him. Now, what are nomads? Who is that? Wanderers. Wanderers. Ones who wander around. They don't really have a, a set homeland. They also don't really pay attention to kingdoms and rulers and you know, things of that nature. The, the word itself actually uh, applies to wild beasts. It's used for, like, like, wild beasts. So we know what a domesticated animal is, right? Dogs are a great example of it. They, they have a home, they have a spot. What about non-domesticated dog kind? Well, they'll wander anywhere and everywhere, right? Okay, so that's the picture that's going on here. But continue that picture just a little bit. When we, we have a, a new puppy... And we're working on training this puppy. And, and when we call the puppy, we expect the pup to come, right? That makes sense. And when we, we tell it to stay out of something, we hope it does that. And generally speaking, our, our dog is starting to learn to do these things. What, have you ever tried to, to command a coyote or a wolf to do something? Do they, do they listen? Do they obey? Well, no, not at all. And so the, the idea that's being pictured here is even that these nomads, these wanderers, they don't submit to kingdoms. They don't obey kingdoms. They don't 
limit themselves by the boundaries of a nation that says, okay, here's our, here's our border, but even these will bow before this king. They will submit to the rule of this king. And his enemies, let, let his enemies lick the dust. Now that one kind of surprised me. Like, what, what, what's going on there? Why would someone lick the dust? And so I, I started kind of digging into that, trying to figure it out. And it is an expression that is uh, designed to reflect complete submission and humiliation. It's actually used a couple other times in Scripture. Um, one of them is in Micah chapter 7, verse 17. And then another use is in Isaiah 49, 23. And the idea in both of these is a complete submission and humility, humiliation. That they are not only bowing down, but like all the way face down, flat on the earth, to the point that they are licking the dust. Um, So it is an expression that all of these people, these enemies, these ones who had stood against him, may they completely submit to him. So what is the um, extent of his reign? It's over all the earth, but not just all the physical earth, but all people as well. Uh, Verse 10, let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and of Seba offer gifts. Started digging through these and like, okay, what, why is he listing so many different ones? Now, Tarshish comes up somewhere else in, in scripture. Do you guys remember where? Jonah. Jonah tried to run away from God. And where did he try to run? The furthest possible place he could get to. Uh, there's, there's some debate and argument about specifically where this is, but probably what's modern-day Spain is the idea. So that's a long, long ways away. Well, by bringing that in, we're, we're saying the full expanse, not just the nearby kingdoms, but the full expanse of the world that a long ways away would worship him uh, or that, that would, would come and bow down to him. And then we've got the kings of Sheba and Seba. Now, I know that those sound very familiar. It is two different groups. Where else do we hear about Sheba? There's a queen. The queen of Sheba, right, comes and brings presents to Solomon. That, that happens later in his reign. But the queen of Sheba is one example of royalty that comes. And so what, what comes to my mind is this idea of riches. So we have a distance and we have a riches that are both presented. Um, and then Seba comes up several times throughout Scripture. The first mention of it is in Genesis chapter 10, verse 7. In Genesis 10, 7, we find that it is one of the sons of Cush, one of the grandson or the descendants of um, I lost track. One, one of the descendants that is listed in the genealogies of Genesis is Seba. And then that nation, that country comes up again in Isaiah 43, verse 3. Now, we don't know specifically where, but it's probably somewhere in the area of Ethiopia because it's, it's connected with Ethiopia in that way. So the desire is that the kings of those places come and offer gifts. And then verse 11 kind of rounds it all out and says, Let all the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. So I asked the question, what is the expanse of his reign? What is it? Everyone and everywhere, over all of the earth, over all of the world. Now, we was that a question? Okay. 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 All right. 
So as, as we um, look at where he will reign and what is going on, the desire that's being expressed is over all people and all nations. But again, we have to go back to the very beginning of this passage. What kind of rule are we talking about? Are, are we looking at some of the, the kings of the world that have tried to take over the whole world and reign over everything? Like, you know, we can think of Babylon, we can think of Greece, we can think of uh, even more modern examples of nations that have tried to take over everything. Well, those aren't fitting into this idea of injustice in the way that God would rule and reign and do things. And yet what's being expressed here is that desire for a one-world government in essence but not the way that the world thinks of, not the way that people would rule, but aligned with how God would rule and how God wants it to be ruled. Well, I ask you again, when will that occur? How will that occur? We look forward to the time when Christ fulfills this. Now, as I started off, this is a prayer towards Solomon, that his reign, that his kingdom would be this kind of a thing. But it's alluding to and it's looking forward to the ultimate king, the king of kings, the Lord over all lords, who is capable and able of reigning in this perfect way with justice, with righteousness, with compassion. We're going to go on into the, the next section, verses 12 through uh, 15. I think I had a typo in my, my handout that said through 17. It's 12 through 15. And what is the empathy of his reign, or how how does he care for his subjects? Is he a despot? Does he just just he's in power and he gets to make all the decisions and everyone must bow to him and and he rules over them, or does he have empathy? Does he have caring for those people? Well, let's let's take a look at what is listed here in twelve through fifteen. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper, he will have compassion on the poor and needy. And the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. And their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. Let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all the day long. So how is he empathetic in his reign? or how, What is the empathy of his reign? Does he care for his subjects or is he a despot? Do what? He does. He cares for them. It, it, it starts off with this idea of deliver the needy and the afflicted. Now, you start digging into that. That's the poor. That's the ones who have been deceived, the ones who are lowly and weak and depressed. Uh, the idea, the, the word itself means thin. They don't have abundance. They don't have lots. And yet he, he cares for them. And he desires to take care of them and to uh, rescue them from the oppression and violence. That's the idea of deceit and fraud from, from wrong that is being done to them. It specifically deals, that, that idea of violence deals with a physical violence, but it's also a harsh treatment. So it's, it's setting in contrast this idea of a loving, caring ruler who is protecting from those who are oppressive and the despots, the ones who, who rule and just say, hey, I'm in charge, you have to do what I say because I say so. Versus one who cares for and takes care of and handles these things in, in a godly way as we've been dealing with all the way from the beginning of this uh, chapter. Verse 15, so he may live and may the gold of Sheba be given to him and let them pray for him continually. 
As I, as I was going through, I was reminded, maybe, maybe it's been a few weeks and you've forgotten about it, but I was reminded of, second, or of 1 Timothy chapter 2. You remember the, the verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul is telling his folks, I want to encourage you to be praying for one another. Make, make prayers, make intercession for all men, specifically for those who are in authority. That's the same idea that's being presented here, that they ought to be praying for this ruler, for this king. Now, any human ruler, any human king needs prayers. We can very easily start off with that same question that I began with. What would be a good government? What would be a great government? And we talked about some of those things. I'm not going to get political, but if you look around you, I'm sure that somewhere in the world you can find a nation that doesn't do those things. Just guessing. I'm not going to tell you how far you got to look, but you know what I'm talking about. What do we do for them? We ought to. We ought to. I say we ought to because I know I don't always. And yet here we see that same idea. And we looked at it when we were going through 1 Timothy that we ought to be praying for those governments, those rulers. And every human government is going to fail to meet this standard, to meet this this high expectation. Only Christ will be the perfect king that can do this. And that's why we ought to pray for him continually, pray for leadership, pray for those rulers, those who are in authority constantly. Let them bless him all the day long. Moving on into the next section, I, I labeled this as the equipping of his reign, verses 16 through 17. What provisions are made during his reign? May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountain. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever and his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Abundance is the idea that's being presented here. Now, some translations will refer to it as a handful um, May there be a handful of grain in the, in the earth. And, and that is an accurate translation. That is technically what the word is. The idea being con- uh, conveyed through that, though, is not just a single handful and that's all you get. But may his hand be full, be abundantly overflowing. May there be sufficient grain is the idea. May there be a, an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. And its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. Now, this is one of those things that comes up as we, as we go through the Psalms. There are these allusions and, and references to different things that pop up. And this is a good example of one of those. What is the cedars of Lebanon? Why, why are we talking about those? Does any, anybody know about the cedars of Lebanon? Okay, they were large. They, they were brought in for the temple, okay. They were the best lumber is really what's, what they were known for. And everybody knew about these trees because they were excellent, wonderful, great trees. They had huge forests of these trees. And what happens when the wind blows? Well, it, it waves around. And it's creating this picture in the reader's mind of those, those wonderful, beautiful, perfect forests of trees and just the way that they function. And may... Uh, May the grain be like that. May the fruit be like that. So abundant and so beautiful and so flowing and so much of it 
when they, when they reference and talk about the cedars of Lebanon, they're talking about the best of the best when it comes to lumber and wood. That's why it was brought in for the temples, because it was the best that there was. And so this, this picture that's being created, okay, people think of the cedars of Lebanon, and they're like, oh, that is, that is good stuff. May its fruit wave like that. Okay, may there be an abundance of fruit. May there be such a, a wonderful amount and, and such beauty of it and such good quality of it. Yes? I think that there would be a picture of longevity also. I mean, we've got trees down south that are going to be around for a long time. Okay. Uh, a longevity, possibly, that, that as trees age and are, are very old and yet stand firm, that there would be a longevity. That's a possibility as well. But this this idea is the abundance, the quantity, the the provision is so much and so bountiful and beautiful. That's a that's a desire. That's something that they're they're wishing for, hoping for, praying for. I got I keep going back to our Wednesday night studies. I, I don't know about anybody else. I sure have enjoyed them. I'm learning tons because I've I've not delved into the book of Revelation like that. If you missed some of them, it's okay. They are all recorded and on our YouTube page. So you can go back and read through or watch through and see all of those again as, as we understand this rule that Christ will have ultimately. It's such a beautiful, beautiful picture of what's going to occur. That's what we desire. That's what they are looking forward to and, and praying for and asking for. They recognize, I, I, don't, I don't think that any of them expected Solomon to be the Messiah, the promised one who was coming. But what's being expressed here is a desire that his kingdom, that his rule would be like the rule of Christ. And you know, our desire for our government ought to be the same. Yeah, we can, we can start whining and complaining and picking and we can definitely look at some of the leadership that isn't doing that. And yet, our desire ought to be to see Christ rule, but Christ ruling through the human people in a way that is, is pictured throughout this psalm of 72. And ultimately, when we get down to the, the very end, I labeled it the ending of this psalm, or of, of this prayer. It's not the ending of the reign, but it's the ending of the prayer. What is the conclusion that's offered here? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, that's a sudden shift. We've been talking about the king. We've been using Solomon as the, as the example that we're looking forward to the, the ultimate king of kings, but, but looking specifically at Solomon. And then we have this sudden shift that says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, as we've discussed before, there are multiple kinds of blessed. There's be happy, but there's also this kind that is kneel to, bow down before. The, the idea is also of salute this king. So blessed be, praise be to God, worship is owed to God, kneel before the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. I think that this is ending off with this idea because we look at kings and we look at governments and we look at, at ruling and, and societies around us and we can get our focus on those things. And yes, we have desires for them. Yes, we have prayers for them. But ultimately, who is in charge? Who is in control of all of these things? Who do we need to put our focus on? Not who is the current president or who is the next president. Not who is the current governor or the next governor or the previous governor. And whether we liked or disagreed with or whatever, any of that stuff. 
As we look at government, human government around us, our focus ultimately needs to turn to God, to kneel before him, to worship him, to recognize that he alone is the one who works wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Our desire is not that we win the next election or that we get the, the person that we want into a particular office, nor even, you know, we, we have a different society than most of Scripture dealt with. They were in societies and countries where they didn't get to vote. They didn't get to say, oh, we like this person, we don't like that person. They had no way of dealing with that. And yet, what kind of an attitude did they have? Were they expected to have? What kind of attitude does Scripture give? Well, it's this kind of an attitude that is praying for, that is desiring of the, the kingdom that Christ will usher in, and this desire that each king fulfill that and live up to that expectation. But we recognize that that only can happen through the power of God and in His way and in His timing. And so we are left looking forward to the things that we've seen on our Wednesday night studies in Revelation, but also praying for and desiring these things. A couple of, couple of last things. It says, amen and amen. The word itself is just an affirmation um, and a desire for that to be true. The repetition is not only that it be true, but also that it is for sure solidly true. Um, let it be, may it be, so be it, is what's being expressed here with an emphasis on that. And then we get down to verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, there's, a, there's several things going on with that, and I'm not sure I saved myself enough time to deal with them all. A couple of things. One, this is a transition from David as king to Solomon as king. And so we, we recognize that that's the end of David's time ruling things, and yet the desire, the goal, the wish is that Solomon continue that. And from what we saw in 1 Kings, that was Solomon's desire as well, to continue on. But this was also put in as one of the compilations of the Psalms at the times that, as they were being brought together, in which this was probably the last one of David's. Now, in the arrangement that we have today, there are more Psalms that come from David that come up later. But this is the conclusion of that rendition or that setup, um, that songbook, we'll call it, that was at the time. This was the last one. And it concludes what we recognize now as book two of Psalms, which is divided up into five different books. So that phrase, there's, there's a lot going on there. You can dig into it and study it a lot more. Um, but the, that's the conclusion of David and his time as the king, as the ruler, and it's passing on now to Solomon. And then this song actually becomes useful in the coronation of follow-on kings as well with that desire, with that focus, with that pointing towards the ultimate king, the king of kings. We're looking forward to the time when Christ rules, not just when a, a particular human king is in charge, but when the ultimate king of kings is in charge. So what? I always, I always like to end with that question. Good information, interesting things. I, I barely touched on some of the, the structural things of, of Psalms, and I know that there was some discussion of that at the ladies' Bible study. Sorry I didn't get all of those answered. There's, there's lots going on. 
But we can just take that as head knowledge and, and walk away with nothing. Or we can ask that question, so what? What do I do with this? What difference does this make? I think, first and foremost, as we see starting at the very beginning, there's a request being made. And it's not a request being made to the government. It's a request being made to God. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness to the king's son. The focus is a prayer to God that it would be a, a king, a ruler, a government that aligns with the way that God would do things with a recognition, with a, a focus on a future hope and a future time in which it's not just a human king that's doing that, but the ultimate king. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we long for. That's what we desire. But we also are praying for our current governments, our current leadership, whether it's a good one or a bad one. We ought to be praying for them. We ought to be desiring that they align themselves with God and the way that God would do things. We live in a, a different kind of society than most of history has had, in which we have opportunities to be involved in government. And so as much as is within your power, you ought to do these things. As you vote, you ought to be voting for the kinds of people that align with the way that God would do things. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm never going to. But I will tell you, you ought to vote according to what God says, what Scripture says. The people who are going to align with this and maybe some of you might have opportunity to be in a position of government, of leadership, of authority of some kind. Is this the kind of leader that you are, that you're going to be? One who aligns himself with the way that God does things? That's what we ought to be doing. Ultimately, though, I, I'm reminded of, well, again, our book of Revelation study. We get to the very end of it. We're not quite there, but you get all the way to the end. And it ends with, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our desire. So, so what? What do we do with Psalm 2? We desire that this be the case. Recognizing that humans are going to fail, but that's what we want. As much as we have opportunity, that's what we do. And we look forward to the time when Christ is the perfect king who fulfills all of this and so much more. And we long for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Just the, the reminder of what you desire of governments. Lord, we look at the world around us and know that it fails. Even great kings like Solomon failed. But Lord, we look forward to the time when the perfect king, the king of kings and lord of lords will rule all things, will set things right, will we'll rule in peace and justice. God, we desire that and we pray for it to come. But even as we do, Lord, we're reminded that you are long-suffering, that when that time comes, judgment comes with it. But you are long-suffering towards us, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So, Lord, even as we look forward to and desire that perfect kingdom, may we be at work serving you today as you desire us to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.